0: Everyone has that fight or fighter that got them into the sport, and it only takes one particular moment of triumph or perseverance for us to feel bonded to that athlete for the rest of their career. Sadly, the sport of mixed martial arts is often a cruel one, no fighter remains in their peak forever, and eventually all gloves are left in the octagon. However, several times in MMA history we wrote off competitors as being gone for good, but like all those people who poofed away in the Avengers, I don't know what was going on there, the spirit for combat rarely fades away entirely, and some heroes are never gone for good. So let's take a look back at those fighters who, despite what we thought, made a return to the sport. And before the video, just a quick reminder to like and subscribe. We recently noticed only a few of you are getting notifications, so make sure to click the bell and turn those on. I'm Balian from MMA On Point and here are 10 returns you never thought you'd see. Number 10. Oleg Taktarov one of the pioneers of the early UFC, and in all honesty, one of the first true mixed martial artists we saw compete, Oleg Taktarov quickly became a fan favorite for his well-rounded style, calm approach to combat, and of course, after winning UFC 6 in 1995, was technically the first Russian champion. Sorry, Habib. Send a message, like location. Of course, he didn't actually win a belt, but he certainly was the best the country had to offer, and in his first 10 fights lost only once to the big man himself, Dan Seven. In 2001, he'd amassed a 15-5 record, promotion hopping across the globe from Pride, Pancrase, Tudo, and the WFF. Essentially a 10-year veteran at this point, and one from the earliest days of the sport at that, we thought we'd seen the last of the original Russian bear, as he transitioned his ultimate fighting into acting, appearing in Air Force One, Bad Boys Two, National Treasure, and We Own the Night. Oh, he also boxed Delf Lundgren. And he surprised us all, adding his historic name to the bill at the legendary Bodog USA vs Russia in 2007, six years after his retirement. I mean, how could the first Russian champion refuse such an event? And after getting dropped earlier and weathering the storm and a grueling back and forth, one in spectacular fashion via rolling kneebar, He would then make another return one year later to fight the monster Mark Kerr in the now defunct yet still legendary Yama pit fighting, where he would win again in less than two minutes via his kneebar. Legacy maintained Varsis Darovia. Number nine, Uriah Faber. At this point, due to the sheer amount of lists Mr. California appears in, I'm going to assume you know enough about his career, UFC Hall of Famer, WBC Champion, Collegiate Wrestler, and Perennial Top Contender of the Bantamweight Division. And you'll probably also know that following a 13-year career in 2016, Faber finally hung up his gloves following his victory over Brand Pickett, in his hometown of Sacramento nonetheless. Pretty much a perfect exit, if you ask me. Apparently, Faber knew something we all didn't. However, he wasn't actually retired, just taking a bit of a break. I'm not leaving. Sure his days as an active competitor in the division were over, but he was still a big name and during the period was inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame. And come Faber's 40th birthday, he thought he'd treat himself, and us let's face it, to one more contest in the UFC octagon. After three years away in what we were sure was the last time we'd seen the Californian kid, he returned in emphatic fashion against Ricky Simone and stopped him in just 46 seconds. Excellent, a nice cherry on top of an already cream-filled cake of a career. He proved that not even father time could stop him from recreating his past glory, so it was time for Faber to exit The sport. Except he did take one more fight with future champion Peter Yarn and it didn't go well. Swings and roundabouts, innit? Number eight, Sakuraba. It is said if you return to the fabled Saitama Super Arena and listen to the echoes around its empty stands, you can still hear the chants of Saku reverberate around its walls as a Japanese legend makes another walk into the Pride ring. Sakuraba's first pro win would actually come at UFC Japan, where he won the heavyweight tournament in 1997 and would then spend the next three years staying undefeated, more or less, in the Pride promotion, also cementing his place as a pioneer and legend of the sport, with his wildly entertaining submission attacks and undeniable heart and will. His career would run 15 years to 2011, where, at Dream 17 while wearing more bandages than Imhotep after four losses in a row and age finally catching up with him, even commentator Frank Trigg proclaimed, I hate to say it about a true legend of the sport, but he really needs to stop fighting. And he did, or at least we thought he did, as he would spend the next four years out of competition. That was until new Japanese promotion Ryzen had their inaugural show in 2015, and who did they want to headline such a prestigious event? Three guesses. Sakuraba was booked once more in a return contest against fellow submission legend Shinya Aoki. The MMA world was both shocked and in jubilation to see one of their favorite legends compete again. Unfortunately for Sako, things didn't go his way, as was expected, to be honest. But for Sakuraba, it didn't matter. He always cared for one thing, his fans, and he got to give them a show one more time. Number 7. Bas Rutten Sadly for most of us, the Routin era was before our time. And yes, before you call me a casual, I was literally two years old when he made his debut. But that didn't stop many of us from hearing about this legendary Dutch kickboxer back when he was truly a menacing figure, Jack Stacked and beating more livers in the 90s than Jack Daniels. From 1993 to 1998, Bass dominated the Pancrase promotion, capturing the title, defending it and ending on an 18-fight win streak. After leaving, he had two fights in the UFC, but injuries had began to catch up with El Guapo, and after capturing a heavyweight title against Kevin Randleman, he vacated the belt and himself from the sport. And although we were sure we'd see Bass around, commentating pro wrestling and generally being his goofy self, no one expected to see him in the cage again. But we were wrong. In 2006, seven years removed from MMA competition and his UFC title, to the surprise of many, he announced his return to MMA and was once more booked to fight none other than everyone's favorite holy warrior, Chemo. But two days before the event, he tested positive for steroids and was replaced by Warpath Ruben Villarreal. Bass wasted no time landing accurate and crisp punches before blasting him with those proper dutch leg kicks and it took only five before villarreal collapsed to the canvas and el guapo turned back the clock seven years later number six josh barnett the rise of Josh Barnett in the founding years of MMA was truly something to behold. Here was this 20-year-old, supersized, catch-wrestling submission machine with a vicious tenacity and a toolkit deeper than a bag of holding. His UFC debut in the year 2000 saw him go 10-0 at just 23 years old. With an entire career and growing sport in front of him to conquer, he captured UFC gold shortly after but was stripped after failing a drug test and would spend the next 10 years competing anywhere but the UFC, winning the Pancras Openweight title, making it to the final of both the Pride and Strikeforce Heavyweight Grand Prix. since his UFC dismissal his relationship with Dana White had been rocky at best. In fact, in 2010, Dana stated, Josh Barnett isn't and never will be in the UFC. This isn't the kind of guy that I respect or want to do business with. citing his attitude and multiple drug test failures as the primary reason. But lo and behold, following the acquisition of Strikeforce, it was shortly announced that none other than the War Master himself would be making his UFC return. Older fans were shocked to see Dana finally relent on his promise from three years ago. I guess the heavyweight division really was that desperate. And the youngest ever UFC champion made a return across the next three years, eventually going three and two. Number five, Chuck Liddell. Waging war has its price, and when you've been competing in knockout contests for the best part of 10 years, like the Iceman had, it's not surprising that no matter how much you prepare for battle, like Maximus in Tigris, Father Time takes his toll. Chuck was the cult star of the early 2000s, and we saw him amass 8 finishes and 13 victories, losing only to Randy Couture and Jeremy Horn inside the Octagon, both of which he avenged. But starting with his knockout loss to Rampage Jackson in 2007, things started to slide for Chuck as he would win only one of his next 5 contests, three of which ended with him unconscious. After his TKO lost to Shogun at UFC 97, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame for everything he had achieved so far in his career, perhaps hoping this would give him reason to comfortably lay down the gloves with Dana himself stating, I don't want him to fight. But Chuck was matched with Tito for one more season of The Ultimate Fighter and a final and third rematch in their trilogy. Tito got injured, however, and Liddell fought instead Rich Franklin, and unfortunately for Chuck, was KO'd again late in the first round. So following his third KO loss, he retired and was given the position of Vice President of Business Development by the UFC. However, once WME purchased the company he was relieved of his position, leaving him once again jobless, and shortly after, he announced his return to MMA to finally emerge in the trilogy match with rival Tito Ortiz. Ortiz had still been competing up to this point. Chuck was now eight years removed from his loss to Franklin and looked like a scarily vacant version of himself. And that's exactly what we got come fight night, as Ortiz walked through the Iceman, KOing him in the first round, In one of those moments where you already knew what was kind of going to happen, but you couldn't help but watch anyway. Number 4. Hoist Gracie Believe it or not, it actually took seven years before Hoist Gracie was handed his first defeat in MMA competition, and I'd say given the unpredictability, unregulated weight classes and unbridled chaos that often ensued in the early days of MMA, that's damn impressive. Granted, Hoyce had just 11 fights in two years before taking a five-year hiatus from the sport, but in that time he won UFC 1-2 and 4 before setting down his gi and returning for the Pride Open Grand Prix in 2000, a tournament that contained monsters like Mark Kerr, Gary Goodridge, Enton Inoue, Mark Coleman and of course Sakuraba, who handed the his first defeat after they battled for 90 minutes in the pride ring he would then compete in some of the more heavily modified set competitions in pride as well as k1 of all places and even make a return to the ufc to get smashed by welterweight kingpin matt hughes after attending a UFC press conference in Brazil in 2010, Hoist announced his desire to return to the Octagon, and he was even added back to the website roster in 2011, but after struggling to find the right opponent, and on the 20th anniversary of the UFC in 2013, he announced to Ariel Hawani his retirement from the sport. So a long and legendary career was at an end, but the fighting spirit of the Graces clearly could not be contained. Either that or he needed the cash, but either way, the new freak show fight capital of the world, Bellator, came a-calling in 2016, offering him a veteran's bout against a 52-year-old Frank Shamrock. Hoist Himself being 49. In a return, no one expected to see, nine years removed from his last contest, he accepted the fight, and in a scrappy, surely testosterone dick-pilled fueled contest stopped the former most dangerous man on the planet in just under three minutes. Number three, Misha Tate. If you took a look at women's MMA in 2011 and the roster of athletes that encompassed it, you'd probably point to only one name as the future of the sport. And no, it wouldn't be Ronda Rousey necessarily. Granted, she was already 4-0 and angling towards Misha and her title, but Tate had just secured the bantamweight Strikeforce belt, was 12-2 and on a six-fight win streak. Gina Carano had long since retired and Cyborg, well, although she'd just captured the featherweight championship, she also just popped for steroids. Tate was charismatic, attractive, and a damn good athlete. She certainly could have carried the women's divisions in the UFC and probably done a Damn fine job as its face. Of course, her next fight would be against Ronda Rousey, and history would tell the rest of the story. She did, of course, find her own UFC title after defeating Holly Holm, but retired in 2016 after a near 10 year long career. But little did we know, she was not done yet. In 2021, four years after her loss to Raquel Pennington, Tate announced a return to the sport, stating her belief she doesn't think the sport has passed her by and wanting to make up for the dark place she found herself in in the latter part of her career. She looked truly dominant, being the first fighter to stop Marion Renault in her 11 year career. Granted, she wasn't exactly top of the division. We'll have to see how Tate performs moving forward, but nonetheless, we all thought we'd seen the last of the cupcake. Number two, Brock Lesnar. After several years of WWE wrestling and NFL football, the larger-than-life, quite literally jacked-up white boy decided it was time to see if his ability to toss around humans and deliver blood-curdling speeches would translate into the world of mixed martial arts. Beginning his journey with a one-minute annihilation of min Kim and K-1 Hero's special Dynamite USA event, he moved straight into the UFC octagon, a fight where he'd almost pummeled Mir into unconsciousness before the BJJ black belt strapped on a knee bar. Still impressive for a debut, and just two fights later, he'd won the heavyweight title, defeating Randy Couture at UFC He defended it twice and held onto the record for most heavyweight title defenses right up until it was broken in 2018 by Stipe with his wins over Ngannou. Then after a battle with diverticulitis and two consecutive losses inside the cage, he announced tonight is the last time you'll see me in the octagon. And so Lesnar went back to the WWE, wrestling his life away, making far more money for far less punishment. Speculation around his return lasted for another five years until in 2015 he signed another contract with WWE, putting rumors of his return to bed for good. That was until Ariel Helwani had gotten wind of a special one-off return ahead of UFC 200, where Brock was scheduled to make one more appearance inside the cage, five years after his last defeat. His opponent, Samoan slugger Mark Hunt, who many fans were happy to see receive a large payday and Lesnar emerged the victor after a hard-fought three-round battle. The beast had returned to many fans' surprise, and considering the evolution of the sport in his time away, he was still willing to step up and accept the challenge. Of course, it turns out he had more steroids in his system than white blood cells, but Brock fans were blown away. Number 1. Nick Diaz Given half a chance, I'm still happy to remind fans newest to the sport that the Nevada State Athletic Commission tried to ban Nick Diaz from competing for life because of his continued positive test for marijuana. For life, people. Or at least that's what they said. It was effectively a five-year ban, but given the age of Nick, most, including the commission, felt like that was the case. And as a result, we had to wait six whole years before getting to see one of the most exciting fighters compete in the sport again. Given that in some states there are now no restrictions on marijuana consumption during fight preparation, it's truly sad to look back in hindsight and see how so much surrounding Diaz was mishandled. The UFC literally had a 420-friendly, lifelong martial artist and cultural icon in the palm of their hands and did nothing with it. Instead, a sad reality existed where an athlete and competitor the caliber of Nick was forced to the sidelines in what could have been the final prime years of his career. Diaz himself will tell you that since his pro debut, people have been doing everything they can to prevent his success in this sport. And you kind of have to hand it to him. Promotional malpractice with interviews, posters, and severe punishments were dealt out left, right, and center, with Diaz often being portrayed as the bad guy, with the focus and promotional attention usually shifting to his opponent. His brother Nate found his big break in the Connor fight and has certainly started earning pay equivalent to his needle-moving ability. Nick, on the other hand, has been denied that chance for years and now, finally, against all the odds, is making a return to the sport. The question is, do you think that was enough or do you think Diaz should fight again? A big shout out to Luke Taylor for editing this video. You can find him and some of his amazing artwork on Twitter at cool2me underscore. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. Thanks so much for watching today, guys. Remember to like and subscribe. I'll see you in the next one.